The annual Catholic Campaign for Human Development collection will take place on the weekend of November 21 and 22. For 50 years, CCHD has been working to address the root causes of poverty in the United States through the promotion of organizations that help people help themselves. This mission is more important than ever. The COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the poor and vulnerable particularly hard, and CCHD organizations are responding to this time of extraordinary need. CCHD grantees create jobs, improve neighborhoods, keep schools safe and enriching for children, and raise leaders of the future right here in the Archdiocese of Chicago. To donate and for more information, please visit cchdchicago.org. We are so thankful for your support. Now, on to the show. You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hey everyone, I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. I've been blogging at MessyJesusBusiness.com since 2010. Messy Jesus Business, the blog, and now the podcast, explores how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. Now, on to our guest. Michael Okinchich-Cruz is the executive director and co-founder of the Coalition for Spiritual and Public Leadership. As a faith-rooted community organizer with nearly a decade of experience, he has worked to address issues related to criminal justice, mental health, corporate bank accountability, immigration reform, refugee rights, public transportation, and economic justice. He has trained thousands of leaders from across the country on the methodologies of faith-based community organizing. Michael is also an adjunct professor at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University of Chicago, where he periodically teaches courses on Catholic social teaching, Christian ethics, and leadership in social justice organizations. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, we discuss how CSPL helps people enrich their spiritual lives and connect that to their public lives, and why, as Christians, we need to be engaged in this work. We talk about the essential role of relationship building in addressing systemic issues, and we define solidarity through this lens, examining the importance of developing authentic relationships that can be transformative in public life. Enjoy! Hi Michael, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you, Sister Julia. It's great to be with you today. Yeah, well I'm really excited to uh, hear a lot about your journey and the Coalition for Spiritual and Public Leadership in particular. 
Uh, but before we get into that, why don't you, uh, yeah, tell me, tell me how you became who you are today. This, this, uh, well, a rabble rouser of sorts, <laughs> right, right. building up holy trouble for the, for God's reign. Well, let me just first thank you for having me. It's really an honor and a, and a privilege. Um, and just to jump into the uh, question here, you know, I've, I've thought about this question a lot over the years because I think in in organizing, um, you've got to, you've got to have some kind of wellspring that, that continues to nourish and sustain you. And it just can't be, you know, this, um, fire that's burning 24 seven, um, uh, this anger about injustice. There's gotta be something deep that keeps you in, engaged and, sustained in the work and so I've, I've thought a lot about what is it that at the core of it all helps to keep me going especially you know given the times that we're in which are profoundly difficult um, and challenging for so many of us especially those who are most vulnerable um, whether it be because of their socioeconomic status their immigration status um, certainly if they're if they're black in this country if they're a person of color. Um, and I think for me, there's so much that goes back to, to my upbringing and my family. Um, I grew up in, in Southern California. I was born in a place in uh, San Diego, a neighborhood called San Isidro, which is right along the Southern border. I grew up in a household that was very unique in the sense that my mom's Mexicana, my father's a refugee from Poland, they're trying to figure it out and here they have three boys and um you know we went through a lot a lot of ups and downs financially um you know also just going through life and you know knowing that you're you're biracial and for a lot of us you know california is this real beautiful destination but you know california like many many other places in this country also has a, a real dark underside and that underside has to do with race, racism, caste, xenophobia. And, um, you know, I grew up knowing intuitively that Mexican people were um, relegating people's servants to taking care of people's lawns, to uh, being people's laborers, to being paid far less, to being poor. Um, those were the messages, the intuitive messages, um, the explicit and implicit messages that were always communicated. And so that, that was very prominent growing up. So my mom was very, very resourceful growing up. And, and I remember that um, we would always cross the border with her. We would travel to Tijuana uh, once every week or two weeks with her to pick up food, to go shopping, to get car repairs done, uh, to take our dog to the veterinarian. Hmm. And so, you know, going back and forth uh, between the United States and Mexico was very common for my brothers and I. And, you know, that was a very important part of my upbringing. I remember hmm. that very distinctly. You know, the other thing I remember is um, church and church life and faith hmm. formation. And my mom was profoundly committed to us going to church on Sundays hmm. and I have to admit, it drove my brothers and I crazy uh, mm -hmm. because, you know, we were three rambunctious young kids and 
it was hard to keep us seated for extended periods of time. Uh, but I think I had a, a pretty unorthodox in some ways upbringing within the church, within the context of the church. Um, early on, of course, being Mexican and Polish, I, I was, you know, we were in Catholic church and you know, yeah. we were baptized and went through the first, um, our, all, all those important steps in a child's formation. Uh, but I remember the parish we were going to, and I still remember that parish, you know, because we, we didn't stay there very long. I might've been like seven or eight when we transitioned to another church entirely. Uh, but I remember, I remember the Eucharist. I remember the way the parish looked inside. I remember, you know, the, the look of the pews, the smell of it all. Um, and I remember one, one day, all of that changed. You know, we, hmm. we, were, we were at this church and then we were no longer at that church. And I remember my mom telling us she was so livid about it. But one day after mass, they'd always have a social hour where families would gather in the hall, the main hall and have donuts and coffee. Mm. And on one particular Sunday, my mom who would often take us to church on her own, my father at the time wasn't going to church very often. Um, and she, she was in this hall with others. We were, we were with her and the priest approached her and he said, Mary, your check bounced. And it was very public and it was very oh. humiliating. And my mom, she's such a chingona, like chingona means badass in Spanish, you know, okay. badass woman. <laughs> she was pissed off. I mean, she mm. was livid. And she just, she just said, you're not, gonna, you're not gonna humiliate me like this. You would never do this to somebody else. Um, you'd never do this to a man or um, to somebody of another race. Mm. Um, but she took us and she said, I'm not coming back to this church. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be treated this way. I'm not going to let my kids mm -hmm. think it's okay to treat people this way. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think her seeing how public that was and how intentionally mm -hmm. demeaning that was, was such a huge turnout for her. So my mom, who was trying her best to raise three boys, I think understood that what she needed in a church was somewhere to take her kids where they could be surrounded by good mentors and where there was plenty of things for her kids to do, to keep three, you know, boys, she used to cause busybodies, boys engaged and active. Um, and so it just so happened in, in that in the neighborhood we were growing up in, they started um, building a big church campus, literally two blocks away from our home. And, you know, we had no idea what it was. Uh, we just saw them, you know, leveling this big lot and building a church. It turned out to be a Salvation Army church. And they, they started growing a little seed community um, at a retail shop across the street from the church that they were actually building. And I remember being in there. We were in this, like, little office. And there were, like, maybe three families, four families there. And there was Bible study and churchy stuff going on. I mean, I was so young, I didn't really know what was going on. I just remember going from a church, you know, with pews and we'd go up and get wine and this piece of, you know, this piece of bread. And then we're in this office building where none of that's happening, but we're talking about Jesus and Noah's Ark and God. And, and then I remember they built this gigantic church campus, you know, the Salvation Army Church Campus, and it's huge and it's new, it's flashy. It's, you know, architecturally, it's so different from the Catholic parish we were at. 
the vibe was very different. But I remember, you know, they had this huge field where we could run endlessly. They had this like state-of-the-art basketball court. There were like karate classes for kids. There was music classes. And for, you know, an eight or nine-year-old, and then my brothers who are two and a half years younger, we just, we ran around endlessly. And I think for my mom who was struggling, you know, to raise us because of issues at home, uh, because of financial difficulties, uh, she knew that she just wanted her boys to be in a place where they could, where they could stay busy, where there were people who could help, help instill with us good values. Um, and so we went there, you know, for many, many years. And I think one thing I think about that, you know, I'm obviously Catholic these days. I came back to the Catholic church in my, in my mid twenties, right around the time that Pope Francis emerged as, as the Pope of uh, the Roman Catholic church. Um, when I was living in Buffalo, New York, organizing there. But I think about my mom's faith and her, her just her profound commitment to service. Um, she was always, always engaged in volunteering at the church, giving back, you know, and it, it, it even like we, my brothers and I, we were a little perplexed by this because we knew that we were struggling financially and yet my mom found ways of giving money, giving herself, giving her time, giving her energy, giving her love, giving her gifts and talents. And as kids, you're just kind of like, well, why when we don't have enough? You know, why are you doing this? At times, I think we thought about that. But seeing my mom just give, 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 really stuck with me. And I think to me, that was so core to how she expressed her faith and what she believed in, um, that I think that had a profound influence on me. I think the other thing that struck me and that really influenced me was I graduated from college in 2009 and it was right in the middle of the, the massive economic collapse that we just went through a little over 10 years ago. And I remember graduating and thinking, well, here, I finally made it. You know, my parents all my life, they said, Michael, you got to pursue the American dream, go to college and then get rich and then you can help your parents out. And I thought, wow, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to make it. And then I go to college and I graduate and there's like no jobs. There's nothing. There's no opportunity. It's profoundly difficult. And I remember even the year or two prior to that, you know, I mentioned my family's always had economic challenges for many, many years. But those two or three years prior to that were very hard, very hard on my family. And I remember being in school and you know, working side jobs and sending money home to support my parents. Um, my mom, who taught for many years um, in San Diego and across Southern California, she ended up losing her job because of um, a lot of corruption in one of the school districts she was working in at the time. And instead of keeping tenured teachers, teachers with a lot of experience under the belt, who they had to pay more because of their experience, they decided to try to let go of tenured teachers and hire, you know, young teachers right out of college who they could pay a fraction of, uh, for, for a fraction of the price. So my mom was at work without work in, you know, 2008, 2007. And then my father, who's a carpenter and a contractor, he's now retired because of age and, and just um, the difficulty of working in this backbreaking work for so many years. He was also without work. And so my brothers and I, you know, in 2007, 2008, we were, um, you know, we were supporting our parents. I was in college making money and sending it home. 
And then, you know, the economy just completely collapsed. And that's when it really got at its direst um, you know, that was a really difficult time for a family. And so I remember graduating and my brothers and I, we were sending so much money home at one point that uh, we didn't have enough money to put food on our own table. And we were off, I had just graduated. They were starting up with college. And I remember my mom said, you know, she was very resourceful. And she said, you know what, go to the nearest church and see what they have to give you. And I remember going to this church and the line was so long. You know, we got there and there were probably 30, 40 people in line. And I remember just this like profound shame hitting me. And I'm, I'm even a, like, it's sad to say that because I know that for so many millions of people in our country today, you know, that's, that's the present reality is they need help. You know, they need food on the table today, um, not, not tomorrow, today. And I remember going and I remember just feeling this feeling like I, I busted my tail the last four years to get through college. This is what my parents told me I needed to do in order to make it. And I just graduated and here I am. And what's wrong with this picture? I remember saying to myself, what's wrong with this picture? And I think that was, a, that was a moment for me where I really began thinking about what was happening in our country at the time. I remember this was when the Occupy movement was really building momentum. Uh, there was a conversation about the 99%, the 1%. I'd actually written my, my senior um, thesis about real estate bubbles. You know, and this whole economic collapse is caused by speculation and greed and the exploitation of everyday working families who wanted to buy a house and who were exploited by banks and by Wall Street. So I'm writing this paper, I'm researching it, my family's going through it, you know, they're, they're being hounded by, by banks. My brothers and I are helping them make their mortgage payments. At one point, they're about two or three payments behind, so foreclosure was right around the corner. And I just thought, and I thought, and I thought, and I said, what can I do? And it turns out I, I ended up finding a job out of college that I didn't like, but it was a job that helped me help my parents. And, um, but throughout that first year out of college, I kept discerning, what, did, what am I gonna do? And what is what I'm going through and what so many millions of families are going through, how does that have a place in my discernment around what am I feeling called to do? And it just so happened, I don't know how or why, but at some point I started um, reading more about theology. And I remember the first book I picked up was uh, Martin Luther King's The Strength to Love, which is one of the most remarkable books out there. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love that book. Yeah. What a, what a remarkable yeah. book, right? And yeah. so I remember reading these sermons and then one thing led to the next, and I'm just devouring mm. theological works about the social gospel, mm. um, the social dimensions of Christianity, mm. Catholic social teaching. And I said to myself, where was this when I was in church huh. three or four days a week growing up? You know, and, and that really inspired me. It really inspired me. And I was in my early 20s at this point. And you know, long story short, I, one day I talked to a mentor of mine that I had encountered back from back in my days at um, 
as an undergrad student. And he said, you know, have you thought about community organizing? And I said, what is that? I had no idea what community organizing was. <laughs> right, because so, of course we didn't have a presidential candidate yet who um, increased consciousness about, right? Remember the campaign right? of Barack Obama oh, yeah. and how suddenly community organizer was- Everywhere. Uh, everyone knew yeah. what it was quickly. Absolutely. And had so, opinions about it. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I Googled it as a millennial would. I Googled oh, sure. community organizing and- yeah. um, I, you know, I found an organization that I eventually ended up working with and I spent five mm -hmm. years um, mm -hmm. working in Buffalo, New York. Prior to that, I had, I had done a lot of um, nonprofit educational work in the Bay Area and mm -hmm. Berkeley and Oakland, mm -hmm. but this was different. I mean, this mm -hmm. is what I think what spoke to me about organizing was that one, it was deeply rooted um, in faith and mm. was seeking to move the church to play a more active and robust role in yeah. civic life. And there was so much history around that. And then the other is, you know, the work to engage ordinary people mm -hmm. in doing extraordinary things in their neighborhoods and their communities mm. just spoke so deeply to me. Mm. And um, so I was living in California and I said, well, if the only organizing job I can find is in Buffalo, New York, that's where I'm going to go. And so I moved out to Buffalo in 2000, early 2012, January, and I didn't know anything about Buffalo. Um, hmm. I lived there for five years, and it was very transformative. I learned a ton about the work, about myself. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that, that was, you know, um, those are key reasons why I got involved in this work. And I think over time... You know, as I've reflected on what keeps me in this work, I think it has so much to do with my faith. It has so much to do with my upbringing. It has so much to do with, um, I think, the vital importance of this work. You know, the ability to work with extraordinary people, parents, youth, elders, who have so many aspirations and hopes for their community and being able to achieve some of those dreams and aspirations through hard, deliberate, um, intense work um, in public life is just, it's mm -hmm. remarkable. And, yeah. yeah. So in what year did you actually found the Coalition for Spiritual and Public Leadership and get that started? Yeah, so that was in 2017. I, oh, so I, it's really new. Yeah. yeah we're yeah. in a... We're in the middle of our fourth fiscal year right now. Okay, and congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And if you don't mind, before we get into it, like what it is and everything, I'm just curious, did you have to discern that with a bunch of people and dream about it for a good long while before you decided? And how did it kind of take shape and, and launch? Well, that's a great question. And what I was um, going to say was that I, so I was involved, yes, in co-founding CSPL mm. and, um, there were about seven or eight of us in the beginning who, who gathered and who were thinking about forming an organization. And for so many of us, I think for all of us at the table at the time, the things that, that really drove and animated our conversations um, was, a, was a desire to see kind of a deeper integration between um, community organizing and the methodologies of community organizing Mm -hmm. which, which speaks to the importance of grassroots power, leadership development, um, civic engagement, um, 
the decisive leadership of those who are most impacted um, by, by the forces of oppression, exploitation, racism, that those who are affected most intimately should be at the forefront of decision-making and reshaping the conditions that, that shape their lives. So integrating this with a deep commitment to spiritual and theological formation rooted in the Catholic traditions. And, you know, I, I've been in organizing now in faith-based organizing for uh, over 10 years, mm -hmm. close to 10 years. And, you know, when I was in Buffalo, I was studying theology. I, I, I went and got a, a master's in theology from Colgate Rochester Crozier in Rochester, New York. And then I, I got a doctorate in ministry from Fordham. And the reason I say that is because I think all along I was searching for um, I was inquiring, I was trying to find language and, and a framework for how I could better understand this work of organizing. Mm. And, you know, it was a blessing to encounter a group of people who had, had a drive and a passion for this as well, um, who said, we want to combine organizing with a deep commitment to spiritual and theological formation, that these two things go together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a robust commitment to civic life should, should be fed by a robust spiritual, spiritual life, um, a mystical life. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, some of those people that were at the table from the beginning are, you know, helping to drive and shape our work today. Um, I'd be remiss not to mention their names, you know, Gabriel Lara, who's on our staff now. Mm -hmm. um, Joanna Ariano, who's my, my much, much better half, um, my partner. She used to work at the Archdiocese of Chicago, actually. Um, yeah, which our listeners may be wondering, how, how do you know Michael, Sister Julia? <laughs> uh, yeah. And I should say, I'm helping out with the Archdiocese of Chicago's Catholic Campaign for Human Development, which we'll mm -hmm. get to in a moment. We'll talk about what that is and, and talk about the upcoming collection, which we are really hoping everyone will be very generous to this, this year. Um, but yeah, so Johanna is one of the, the people. And, and then who other, who else did you want to mention? Yeah, so Johanna, Ariano, Gabriel Lara, John de Costanza, Kathleen Mass Weigert, uh, Sue Ross, Kath, um, uh, John Barrett. Um, you know, this, this group of, of folks really were intimately involved from the beginning. And it's grown, you know, and bringing on Sister Fran Glowinski from the Wheaton Franciscan Sisters and Alex Sanchez and others, just helped our board expand and grow. Mm -hmm. um, and now, you know, in the last three and a half, four years, our organization has just expanded so beautifully. We, we work on issues related to immigration, violence prevention, mental health, economic justice. Um, we did a lot, a lot of work around the census. It's been a very tumultuous, you know, year dealing with all the ups and downs. Uh, mm -hmm. given, given some of the decisions by the federal government and the Supreme Court. Um, we're doing a lot of work right now on voter engagement, you know, engaging folks in the electoral process, um, educating them on what Catholic social teaching has to say about these issues. Yeah. Um, and helping them to think more critically about how their conscience is being formed. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, in practical ways, helping folks determine a plan for how they're going to vote. Mm -hmm. Are they going to vote by mail? Are they going to vote in person? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been, you know, one of the things that we wanted to prioritize in the beginning of forming CSPL was formation and training. Mm-hmm. Uh, developing a very robust training program that mm-hmm. um, combined organizing methodology again with Catholic spiritual and theological traditions. And so the work has been rich and fun and challenging mm-hmm. and nourishing and all those things together. Yeah. And you said once to me that it's um, really what you do is you form ordinary folks um, in spiritual spiritual growth and development, yeah. right? And, and you enrich their, their spiritual lives. And then you help them to connect that to their public likes because they are a child of God, because they have dignity, because uh, maybe because they have a preferential right, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, preference, uh, they therefore uh, like have a responsibility to contribute. So then, okay, what are your dreams? How do we, how do we tap into that? How do we help create the world that you believe that God wants you to, to be living in? Uh, I'm aware of one of the things you do is, um, and you have a variety of projects, but you have economic work, right? Mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. And uh, I know you had the La Fiesta uh, collective of the, the caterers who were cooking yeah. good food. And then uh, they, um, but when the pandemic began, that, that cooperative had to pivot and now, and then they started making masks, right? Mm-hmm. For, for people and that's, and people can go on your website and buy masks and support this this little workers cooperative. So that's, yeah. I mean, just like a little ordinary thing you're doing to help people have dignified work and to sustain themselves and build their communities and care for their families. Just one example. I know you're doing a lot of things. Uh, so, so great. Yeah. And so how does, how what's your method though in, in increasing uh, people's understanding of the spiritual life and how that mm-hmm. ought to be enriching their, their lives publicly? Like, yeah. I, that's a great question. And I think there's no one simple answer. <laughs> you don't have like a, no, I, a I wish, one, eight, I wish, two, three. I really was hoping for that, my friend. I wish I did, but I, I think that there's, you know, there's something in, you know, the podcast being in Messy Jesus Business is so beautiful because I think that um, it's, it's, uh, it's journey. And Mm. so for one, we, we do, you know, we, we prioritize training and formation and workshops and that speaks a lot to the, um, you know, the reasons behind why we as, Catholics and Christians need to be engaged in this work. And so theologically, we talk about that. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, the spiritual side of this is in the practice. It's in the day-to-day encounters with people. Mm-hmm. It's in the process of listening intently. Mm-hmm. It's in the work to build relationships and community. It's in encountering others whom we might not often encounter and build deep and authentic relationships with. Yeah. It's in wrestling with the, you know, the anxiety that plagues us and that for, for years has told us we're not good enough. Um, mm. We're not worthy. Why should we be a leader in our community? And, yeah. you know, the beautiful yeah. part is that for so many of our leaders, they've, you know, been told this because of their gender, because of their educational level, mm. because of their economic status, because mm-hmm. of their race, yeah. because of their status um it's it's in the 
opportunities to break bread together and talk and strategize about the work or just catch up and share a laugh. It's in the, it's in the liberating work of standing up and challenging a public official around something that's profoundly inhumane. It's in the work that comes with your confidence growing when you see where you've come from and where you're going. Yeah. So it's little by little, like people experience their dignity and worth because you're giving them a way to live from that center. Yeah. And I would say, yeah, I, and I would, I would say they're taking the opportunity, you know, Um, to, to live this kind of life. mm. And we're, we're simply there as an organization to say, this is your organization and let's make it yours. Yeah. You yeah. help you help determine the course and direction of this organization mm-hmm. and the work that we do. Mm-hmm. And you embody the spirituality that represents who we are. How do you get them involved? They're busy people. <laughs> How do you get tremendously? Them and I, yeah. I I think it's it's uh you know, for folks out there who live very professional lives and yeah, you know, like you and I, you know, yeah. we're very we're very busy. And, and then I think about it and I say, you know, there's this leader, you know, I'll just, I'll just put out a few names for, for to, to kind of give some examples, you know, Maria Franco or Anneli Jaime or, you know, Sandy Gates or Anthony. Yeah. You know, I know in Maria, Maria and, and Anneli's case, their parents, you know, they've got kids, mm-hmm. young kids, older kids, they've got multiple jobs. Uh, they have responsibilities at the parish. I mean, from, 6 a.m. till 10 p.m. They're running around working with their kids, um, helping them grade, working at the church, working multiple jobs. And yet they find time to make this a priority, Mm. to organize, to be a leader, uh, to help bring others to the table. And so I think, you know, for us, our primary method of engaging these folks and, and walking with them is through relationship building. Mm. Um, you know, we talk about the one-on-one. It's the one-on-one is an, it's a, it's a intention to sit down across the table from somebody to ask them about who they are, what their story is, what their hopes and aspirations are, what they want to see changed in the community, what mm-hmm. are their fears and doubts, because really it's, it's the most authentic way to organize with mm. people is to mm. form relationships with them. Mm, and, and relationships are always messy. <laughs> always messy. And yet, I think this is one of the things that Jesus shows us. Yeah, yeah. You know, G- Jesus is constantly building relationships with people. Yeah, yeah. You know, talking to people who are on the shores fishing. Yeah. Um, you know, talking to folks who are struggling. Yeah. There's so many examples. I mean, we could go on and on and on. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I, and I'm going to, we're going to talk more about Jesus, but let's, let's talk a little bit about the Catholic campaign for human development. Okay. Yes. So the collection is coming up annually and it happens every November in Chicago and it's in other parts of the United States. And uh, it usually happens in November as well, but some, some dioceses do it differently. And the Catholic Campaign for Human Development is celebrating its 50th anniversary this mm. year. It's a big deal. It's this is the really um, the spirit of Vatican II working at systemic change. This is mm-hmm. the way that you know the Catholic Church has uh, done um, 
it's what it can to try to end poverty instead of mm -hmm. just give a handout to people who are experiencing poverty. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. do both the mm -hmm. works of justice and the works of mercy as Catholics. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a core part of our faith. So um, it, yeah, and in fact, some people will say it's the, the two feet of, of love, the, the, feet, the foot of charity, the foot of like that Catholic Charities does, the work of, of giving to those who are poor. But the work of justice is, or the foot of justice is, is the work that you're doing. It's another form of discipleship and following Christ. So uh, yeah, and I just, just want to plug people in all over the place can donate uh, through their archdiocese, but if they're looking for a special place, they might want to go to um, cchdchicago.org slash give and, mm -hmm. and donate. And that's then we're supporting grassroots community organizers like yourself who are empowering the ordinary person to totally end poverty, you know, to yeah. take, take their communities and their lives into their own hands and, and um, move from that dignified place. So uh, yeah, just a little plug there. Have to get that in. <laughs> and I hope people are really generous in, in their support. And we say thanks. You, you put it so beautifully. And oh, thanks. <laughs> I, um, CCHD is remarkable. It's yeah, a remarkable right. ministry of the Catholic Church. It's, it's what we need to be doing as Catholics. And I think right. it's one of the most under... Um, I don't, I don't want to say undervalued, but I, I think it's one of the most important dimensions of the work of the Catholic Church in the United States today. Yeah, it really is. And, and I think especially, we're having this interview in October, which is Respect Life Month. One mm -hmm. of the great ways that we can respect life is to help people to know the value of their of their dignity and help yeah. them to live in a dignified way yeah. and, uh, and work to end poverty because yes. it's um, then their lives are greater respected. So this, this is part of the pro-life work of our church as well. Mm -hmm. and, and I hope that people can see that. I want to also encourage people to check out your website, the Coalition for Spiritual and Public Leadership, while we're talking about great things going on. What's that website for them? to? Yeah, no, thank you. It's cspl.org. CSPL.org. So, CSPL. I mean, I'm sorry. C, it's CSPLaction.org. Oh, CSPLaction.org. Great. Yeah. Great. So people can go on and they can learn more about our work and what we, what we do. Um, you can learn how to get involved. Mm -hmm. uh, so we operate across Chicagoland, but we provide trainings online. And mm -hmm. so if somebody's outside of Chicago and they want to attend one of our trainings, we have online trainings coming up over the next few months. Yeah, I'm um, actually really excited for the nonviolence training I'm going to do with you. Or is that what it yeah. is? Oh, no, the community organizing. The community organizing training, yeah. And in, in, uh, in a few months, I registered for that. That'll be fun. There's a lot to this. There's a lot of passion, a lot of background experience driving, driving you here. Um, I'm especially hearing how you are truly a border crosser. Mm -hmm. And you are a person who is empathizes deeply with working class struggling folk who um, oftentimes are the least valued, but the most essential workers in, in our society and in our church. I'm wondering for you in the midst of all this, what is discipleship? That's such a great question. And I knew it was coming. <laughs> I, you must listen to the show. <laughs> yeah, I was, um, one of my favorite things to do is to work with my hands outside mm. and, um, 
And I've been doing that a lot over the summer and, and I do that and I listen to podcasts a lot. And so in anticipation of being here today with you, I, I listened to a handful of episodes and I thought, wow, what an honor, given the quality of people who've been on the show and, uh, on past occasions. And so, you know, I, I've thought about this because I've had to think about this quite a bit for myself. We live in a very difficult time. Um, for many of us, going to mass in the last several months has, has not been possible. Um, and unless we go online, but there's something, you know, uniquely distinct and different about that. But I think about this a lot in, in light of the work that I'm involved in and participating in. And there's something, I'm a big fan of Howard Thurman, and uh, he, he talks about um, the, the difference between worshiping Jesus and following Jesus. And to me, that's such a, I mean, it's possible to do both, obviously. But I think oftentimes the Catholic Church and Christianity general has need to, needed to be reminded through the examples of many you know, prophets and saints who've come before us what it really means to follow Jesus. And I think that's, that's what discipleship distinctly points us towards. And I think that walking with Jesus and following Jesus means taking, taking risk, um, being in deep solidarity with those who are most marginalized and oppressed. It means opposing systems of, of violence, of destruction, of death, of exploitation. And in society, we don't have to look very far today to see where those are. Mm -hmm. um, Can I, you know, I'm especially fascinated by your mention of the word uh, solidarity. Mm -hmm. Just yesterday, I was in a conversation with a group of people, and we were discussing whether the ordinary person can define solidarity. Mm -hmm. So how do you define solidarity? That's a great question. I don't know if my answer is going to be adequate, but I'll, I'll take a shot. I, I think solidarity represents um, deep personal commitment and relationship. Mm. It means, you know, oftentimes, you know, we get stuck with this word advocate. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't want to dismiss that word. But I think, to me, advocate represents somebody who speaks for somebody else. Mm. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of times in the Catholic Church, we hear folks say, we've got to be a voice for the voiceless. Yeah, yeah. And I'm often very bothered by that because I've not yet met one person in my over 10 years of work in this field who doesn't have the capacity to speak for themselves mm -hmm. and to name what they want for their lives and for their loved ones. Mm -hmm. Never. And Never. that's more dignifying, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and yeah, it makes know. me think of how this summer during the Black like sort of the the racial rec reckoning that was really erupting uh there was this movement among um white women like myself who have a bit of a platform other white people to really pass the mic and say hey uh you person of color will you please take over my social media platform for a while mm -hmm. and uh there's been 
a desire in myself or, you know, to me, that's part of the mess messiness of this all. There's this awkwardness, the struggle of like, oh goodness, at what, how do I share my voice? Mm -hmm. At what points do I step away and say, no, I'm not the person to talk about this. It's I'm done writing for a while. Someone else can write, please, please take, you know, give other people the chance. Mm -hmm. um, that feels important to me mm -hmm. as a white woman who wants to share my privilege mm -hmm. is to silence my voice mm -hmm. so that other people's voices can be louder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that feels more appropriate too than me thinking that I can really speak for them. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I think that there's a, you know, there's so much use of the word advocate um, yeah. that I think we need to clarify what that really means. And for me, solidarity is something that, that goes far more, more deep. And it means, at least to me, it represents a, a deeper relationship. Mm. One in which both sides have taken the time to listen to one another, mm -hmm. uh, to articulate what what they each want to see happen. Mm. And in dynamics in which you, you have, for instance, one group that has far more privileges than another, it certainly means, you know, the group that has been more historically oppressed, having more space to articulate what their needs, what their hopes, what their desires are, and what solidarity represents and what mm. that looks like. And I think that solidarity also it's not cheap um, support for one another. It yeah. means it, it comes with great sacrifices. It, it means taking risk. It means putting, putting your, your own self, sense of security on the line. Mm -hmm. So means, instead of me putting a Black Lives Matter sign in my window, maybe I should go to a protest and risk my well-being a little bit. Yeah, or, 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 you know, commit to, you know, being in deep and authentic relationship with um, organizations and groups that are led by, by Black people and that yeah. are inclusive of, of, of white allies. Um, I think that that is, you know, we're going to move much further along if people are willing to um, get... Um, how do I want to put this? Develop deep and authentic and meaningful relationships that can be transformative in public life. Yeah. And, you know, I think about people like Ella Baker, who really worked to form um, interracial organizations that um, meant that um, Black leadership was at the forefront of the change, mm. but that created opportunities for white allies to be in the utmost solidarity with them, risking their own lives, taking part in actions that, that um, were unsafe for many, mm -hmm. um, that led some to unfortunately die too prematurely because, because of you know, violence induced by white supremacists. Um, but you know, Ella Baker's work is just one example of somebody who was deeply committed to black liberation and at the same time understood that relationships with, with folks in white communities that were committed to solidarity and to building collective power was an essential part of, of 
our collective liberation, mm. especially black liberation. And I think that, um, you know, po posting, you know, Black Lives Matter sign on our lawn is fine. But if that doesn't move us to be in deep relationship with black people who are fighting for their own liberation, if it means not showing up to meetings, if it means not doing the work to really build relationships and community, it's, it doesn't go nearly far enough. Mm. And I think that that is, you know, that is the kind of work that in our own distinct ways, based on our own distinct positions in society that we're called to do. You know, I think Jesus in so many ways called people to be in deeper solidarity with one another um, and invited people to be in deeper solidarity with one another, called people to sit at the same table, mm -hmm. uh, whether they were poor or, 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 or rich or mm -hmm. anywhere in between those two extremes, uh, whether they were a woman or a man or any, anything in between those two extremes. And so, you know, I think solidarity calls us to a much deeper space of vulnerability, of openness, of relationship. Um, it asks a lot of us, but it's the most beautiful and enriching space we can be in. And at the same time, it's messy and it's hard mm. and it's, and it requires vulnerability and openness and Yeah. Know, so what, why, why is it messy? What is messy about all this for you? Well, I think because we we can oftentimes go in anticipating what the answers are going to be mm. and walk away recognizing that we were completely wrong <laughs> or that we made monumental mistakes along the way mm -hmm. or that we said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing or that we made poor assumptions um hmm. as you say that i'm i'm reminded how sometimes when we're encountering the other, what ends up happening is our mistakes glare back at us, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. As, yeah, and we start to see like how we've, we really ought to be asking mercy. We, we have a lot to say sorry for um, without intending to, um, we have absorbed, I, I mean, I can think for myself spell, self as a, as a privileged, well-educated white woman, like I have absorbed a lot of um, racist, uh, like micro ideas or things like that are very subtle and classist and judgments that sometimes can impair my ability to build an authentic relationship with others. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it's a constant humility, isn't it? And a discovery. Yeah, for all of us. And obviously, you know, there's, you know, um, ways that some of us have been brought up, you know, if, if you're white and you've, you've grown up in a predominantly white community and you haven't had the, the type of experience that would have, um, I don't know, given you a different perspective earlier on in life, you know, there's, there's some things that you've got to learn along the way. But I think the fear of being wrong we're doing the wrong thing oftentimes hinders hinders us from taking that 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 first step and you know community is hard relationships are hard um, they're even harder today given that the temptation is to, to just simply operate in the online world mm. and I think we know that the online world does not enable us to develop the the kind of deep relationships that we need to cultivate to get through the mess that we're in these days. Mm. We're just, 
we're not going to be saved by Twitter or Facebook or the internet mm-hmm. and all the, you know, the tools and resources um, and, you know, booby traps that it, that it offers. Mm-hmm. We've got to be in community with one another. We've mm-hmm. got to be in relationship. We've got to build bonds of solidarity. We've got to take risk. We've got to be willing to lean into the messiness of relationships. And, you know, I think the beauty of this work of community organizing is it's predicated on the richness of relationships and knowing that we together are more powerful than we are divided. Mm-hmm. And that we've got we've to find ways of building deep and authentic relationships We've got to find ways of building interracial solidarity. We've got to find a way of working through many of the um, false ideas and beliefs that we've been conditioned to to operate with in our minds and in our hearts. And I think that, you know, I hear a lot of folks who are very inspired by, by this movement for racial reckoning that we're in at this moment. And there's been many other movements, and I hope that this is a different moment for us. But, you know, the, the first reaction is, I want to I read a lot and mm-hmm. I want to learn a lot. And I think that is important. We've got to educate ourselves. But I, I don't think that the human person completely changes and, and involves simply by reading a book. Mm-hmm. One has got to change the way in which they live their lives. Mm-hmm. And that means looking very carefully at how they live their lives and saying, you know, if I'm a Latinx person and I want to be in solidarity with the Black community, it's got to mean taking steps to find ways to build relationships with leaders in Black communities that are about the work of of liberation. If I'm a, a white person who wants to be about the work of abolition or about um, you know, erasing the prison, uh, the, the school to prison pipeline or addressing, um, vast income inequality, you know, that person, it's not enough to read about it. You've got to find the courage to join an organization or get to work in a way that's going to bring you into relationship with those who are doing the work. And I think that's hard for a lot of folks and that's scary and it's intimidating. Um, but it's necessary. And I think in Jesus, there's so many ways in which Jesus's example provides us with a kind of formula to follow of one who really did try to build relationships with just about anybody he could Mm -hmm. and to bring folks into the fold and to build um, a movement of folks who are really about the work of the kingdom project and bringing God's reign on earth. Amen. You know, thank you. They didn't, I don't know if they had, you know, if they would, Jesus wasn't satisfied with book clubs. (laughs) Jesus was, nor was Miriam or Moses or, you know, Aaron, they, they were about the work of, yes, let's, let's understand what we're up against, but let's do the work and let's do it together. Mm. And it was messy and it was hard and it was intimidating and it was um, very much anxiety producing. But we've got to lean into that. Amen, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And this has been a lot of fun to talk with you. And I'm wondering um, if you just want to give one last little plug for CSPL. Absolutely. I, I would say that if, if you're listening to this and you have a desire to come to one of our trainings or get involved somehow or become a member or learn more about us, 
um, reach out, connect with us. You can go to our website at www.cspelaction.org or visit us on, our, on our, one of our social media platforms on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at CSPL Action. Um, but I have a too. And a podcast, yes, that, <laughs> that is thriving and that has wonderful, wonderful content for, for formation and education. It's called Parting the Waters. Mm. And the other one is called Separando Aguas Turbulentas. Mm. That's our Spanish podcast and Parting the Waters is our English podcast. But I encourage folks, even if it's not with CSPL, you know, find, find a way to be part of a community or an organization that's getting involved. We need more of that these days. We've got to all find ways to get connected to one another, to learn how to be more impactful and effective in public life, to put our faith into action. And, you know, going back to CCHD, CCHD invest in the organizations that are about this work. And that's the beauty of CCHD. And so there's an abundance of organizations out there to connect with. CSPL mm -hmm. is one of them. And so for anybody who's interested, we'd welcome you to get engaged, get involved, or just inquire with us about our work and what we do. That's right. Thanks, everyone, for checking out the Catholic Campaign for Human Development or cchdchicago.org. And there you can see other organizations like the Coalition for Spiritual and Public Leadership who you can get involved with, other grassroots organizations that are building communities of hope, communities, equity, justice, uh, peace and solidarity, as we have discussed. Thank you so much, Michael, for being with us today on Messy Jesus Business, for all you are doing to build the reign of God and uh, empower other people to, to be leaders in their community. I invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. Whereas my conversation with Michael explores the definition of solidarity, I'd like to read for you a quote from Pope Francis's general audience on September 2nd, 2020, in which he expands on what solidarity is. If you can, I invite you to close your eyes and breathe deeply as you listen and pray. Notice if certain words or phrases stick out for you. Is there a particular message that God wants you to hear today? A reading from Pope Francis's general audience on September 2nd, 2020. We must do it together, all of us, in solidarity. I would like to underline this word today, solidarity. As a human family, we have our common origin in God. We live in a common home, the garden planet, the earth where God placed us, and we have a common destination in Christ. But when we forget all this, our interdependence becomes dependence of some on others. We lose this harmony of interdependence and solidarity, increasing inequality and marginalization. The social fabric is weakened and the environment deteriorates, the same way of acting. Therefore, the principle of solidarity is now more necessary than ever. As St. John Paul II taught, in an interconnected world, we experience what it means to live in the same global village. This expression is beautiful. 
The big wide world is none other than a global village because everything is interconnected. But we do not always transform this interdependence into solidarity. There is a long journey between interdependence and solidarity. The selfishness of individuals, nations, and of groups with power and ideological rigidities instead sustain structures of sin. The word solidarity is a little worn and at times poorly understood, but it refers to something more than a few sporadic acts of generosity, much more. It presumes the creation of a new mindset which thinks in terms of community and the priority of life of all over the appropriation of goods by a few. This is what solidarity means. That's another episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Sister Julia Walsh, with assistance from Cherish Bidzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, could you please do a few things? Share with your friends, subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, and leave us a review. Plus, I'd love it if you could support us on Patreon. Thanks! Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. Thanks. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.